Oh Lord, our faith looks up to Thee, especially in times of challenge and trial. Help us to learn to trust You, even when life falls apart. Amen. Grace to you and peace from the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we are beginning a brand new sermon series for three Sundays that takes its title from the title of a Christian movie that came out about two years ago called God's Not Dead. If I may just give a little bit of a hint about the nature of that film, without telling too much, The basic premise of that film story is that a university philosophy professor tells his college freshman students to sign a paper saying, God is dead. One particular student who happens to be a Christian refuses to do that, and so he is told that he must defend his belief in God publicly in front of the entire class throughout the semester. By the way, two weeks from today, February 21st, we are going to show this film at our Mountain View campus about a mile south of here at 12.30 in the afternoon. I invite you to come. If you haven't seen the film, it's worth seeing. We're going to start with a pizza lunch at noon from 12 to 12.30, and then the movie will begin at 12.30. I'd like you to watch this trailer film clip to get a greater sense of what the movie is about. You prayed and believed your whole life, and here you are. Explain that to me. What do you say to people that are offended by your show because you pray to Jesus in every episode? If we disown him, he'll disown us. When a 12-year-old watches his mother dying of cancer, God who would allow that is not worth believing in. Life is really a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. I am Professor Radisson. This is Philosophy 150. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of. There is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. Mr. Wheaton, is something wrong. I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, you will need to defend the antithesis. So your acceptance of this challenge may be the only meaningful exposure to God and Jesus they'll ever have. To me, he's not dead. I don't want anyone to get talked out of believing in him just because some professor thinks they should. Mr. Wheaton, are you ready? God's not dead, he's surely alive. his existence you know the truth so why do you hate him it's a very simple question why do you hate god what would you say how would you defend your faith if you were challenged that's what this series is about we're going to be examining different questions challenging questions that the skeptic might raise to us at some point in our life. 
and hopefully learn from uh, these messages how we might respond effectively with a statement of our own faith. We're going to be looking at different challenges, and the one particular challenge we're examining today is summed up in the question that many people will ask you at different times in your life, how can a loving God allow such terrible, tragic things to happen in this life? Where is God when life falls apart? That's what we're asking this morning. Where is God when life falls apart? And how do we respond to someone who has been traumatized by suffering and come to the conclusion there must not be a loving God, if any God at all? C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, once said that evil is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. So how do we respond when people ask the question, where is God when life falls apart? To be able to address that properly, I think it it would be helpful for us to kind of get the big picture first, to take a look at what the scriptures have to say about God and his view of evil So I'm calling these seven big picture truths. And as we uh, proceed through these, then we'll again come back to the question, uh, where is God when life falls apart? The first basic fundamental big picture truth that we need to understand is that God created a perfect world. When God made this universe, it was without any kind of evil or tragedy, or sin. Genesis 1.31 tells us, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And God's intention from the very beginning was that his beautiful, perfect world would remain perfect on into eternity. We need to understand that's the kind of world we, we originally were given, and that's the kind of God who created it, a God who is good. The second big picture truth then is that in their perfect state, the very first people, Adam and Eve, had free will. This is an important thing to understand. In their perfect state, they had free will. In other words, God did not make Adam and Eve to be like robots, automatically doing whatever God wanted them to do. Out of God's love for his highest creation, human beings, he gave them free will, the ability to make choices. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. With that second statement, God wasn't saying it's impossible for you to eat of that other tree. He's simply warning them about the terrible consequences that would come with making a bad choice. But God wanted them to obey freely, to obey because they truly desired to to honor God in all that they did. He wanted them to love him genuinely, not out of a sense of compulsion. But the sad truth is, they made the bad choice. And they were the ones 
that made it. The saddest story in all of history is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, a portion of it once again, where it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They did it. They chose it. And the consequences were devastating. And that's what we see the result of today. It brings us to the third uh, big picture truth, and that is that the sinful rebellion of humankind resulted in a fallen world with such things as evil, suffering, and death. None of those things were what God intended for his beautiful world. All of that is the sad result of people's bad choice. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, friends, when we talk about the problem of evil, we need to place blame where it properly belongs. And blame does not belong with God. God does not cause evil. Blame belongs with Satan who first tempted people to do wrong and with the people themselves, including you and me. You see, God doesn't fly airplanes into tall business buildings killing thousands of people. People do that. And God doesn't abuse children. People do that. And God doesn't transmit deadly diseases like HIV, AIDS. People do that. And the list goes on and on and on. We also need to understand that the consequences of sin are more than just impacting us and our souls as human beings. The consequences of sin affect the entire created physical world. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning right up to the present time. I mean, have you ever wondered why in this world everything disintegrates? Everything goes from a higher state to a lower state. It doesn't go from lower to higher. Things don't get better and better. They get worse and worse. Have you ever wondered why there are natural catastrophes that destroy property and take people's lives? Things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes that cause such devastation. None of that is what God intended for his perfect world. All of that is the result of sin impacting even the physical universe. Seven big picture truths. Number four, sin separates people from God. We need to understand that sin has that kind of effect upon us. In fact, it showed up right there at the beginning of the story, right after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid 
from God? Here they had been in a perfect, harmonious relationship with their creator God. All was well. And now they're hiding from him. Sin always separates people from God. Isaiah the prophet, years later, would say this, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Big picture truth number five, it finally brings us some good news. That in spite of all of the choices that we human beings have made, in spite of the consequences of sin under which we suffer, God intensely desires restored fellowship with people. That is his honest desire, his heartfelt desire out of the love in his heart that he has for his created people is that all people would be restored back into a right relationship with him for eternity. That's what Paul means when he writes to Timothy, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God genuinely wants to restore us back into that perfect, harmonious relationship for eternity. In the, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet says, the Lord says through the prophet, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God's desire was to remove our sin, guilt, and shame so that we could be restored back into fellowship with Him. That brings us to truth number six, that in His great love, God gave up His Son to restore that relationship with us. It happened at the cross. What an amazing example of love that God who by all rights should have sent every one of us to hell and punished us forever because of our rebellion. Instead, out of love, he punished his own innocent son in your place and mine. When Paul writes to the Romans, he says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for humankind to get their act together because he knew we couldn't get our act together as sinners. And while we were still sinners, Christ gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The last point of these big picture truths is that through faith in Jesus as our Savior, we are promised eternal life with no more suffering or death. That is what we get to look forward to through faith in Jesus. Jesus himself said, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We look forward to the day of the resurrection of all the dead when we will live eternally with our Lord in re renewed heavenly bodies. The book of Revelation tells us God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you see what God is in the process of doing through his son Jesus Christ? He is in the process of restoring us back into a perfect paradise garden. 
We call it heaven. And we look forward to one day being in that place where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more disappointment, no more death, no more grieving. With those seven big picture truths in mind, then we are now able to proceed and attempt to answer the questions of the skeptics. But even with those seven big picture truths, the fact remains that life on this earth does get tough sometimes. Let's admit it. Yes, even for us. Even for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ are not immune to things like disease, pain, suffering, disappointment, death. And so it's a fair question, isn't it? Where is God when life falls apart? Where is he? In the course of your conversation with your doubting skeptical friends, one of them may very well raise this issue to you. They may ask the question a different way. They may say, if God is so good, why doesn't he come down here and do something about all the evil? You know what? He did. God came down here into this mucky, yucky world, and he did something about the evil. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was even born, said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Immanuel. Immanuel in Hebrew meaning God with us. You see, God, our loving creator, was not content to just remain aloof and distant up in heaven. While we are down here suffering the consequences of sin, God chose out of love to leave the glories of heaven and come down into this yucky world and become one of us, to take on a human body so that he could go through what you and I go through on this earth. John, the evangelist, says it this way, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think again about who is writing those very words. John, the same one who with his brother James and their friend Peter were with Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration we heard about a moment ago. There they were when Jesus was suddenly transfigured before them when this bright white light came shining out of him, revealing who he truly is, that he is more than a mere man, that he is God in the flesh. John and friends saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus and were able to testify that they had seen that very one who came down out of heaven into this world, the Word made flesh, to be our Savior, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Where is God when life falls apart? He's with us. He's with us in the fullest sense of that term. He is with us in our suffering. 
Because our God isn't a God who, who sits aloof and, and doesn't have a clue about what it's like to suffer. He came down into this world, took on a human body so that he could experience the worst of all suffering. Suffering that I dare say is well beyond anything any of us have ever experienced. Our Lord Jesus was whipped and beaten and then nailed to a cross to hang there for hours in excruciating pain. And if that were not enough, he suffered the word of damnation from his heavenly Father. There he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he's experiencing damnation, hell, being cut off from God the Father and his love. And he did that so that you and I would not have to experience hell, so that you and I would not have to be punished for our sins. What an amazing God who would come down here to be with us to suffer in our place. And that same suffering Savior knows what it's like when you are going through tough times, when life is falling apart around you. He suffers with you. And so God is one who is able to help us in our times of need. And he invites us to call upon him and to receive from him the strength that we don't have of ourselves. For he is God with us, Emmanuel. Where is God when life falls apart? Secondly, God is working to bring something good out of the bad. He's not only with us, but he is constantly working to bring something good out of our experience of suffering and pain. This is what St. Paul meant when he wrote these words to the Romans. We know that in all things, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, we need to understand that God is not the cause of suffering. But out of his love for his created people, he promises to take our experiences of suffering and bring something good out of it, even if we can't see what that is in the immediate. God always sees the bigger picture, and he knows what our need is, and cares deeply about it, feels it with us, and promises to bring something good out of it. Perhaps it's a lesson in patience. Perhaps it's a deepening of our trust in him, Perhaps it's our ability to testify to someone else of the love of God in the midst of suffering. Whatever it is, it's something good. But now someone may ask the question, but what about all those people who do evil things and seem to get away with it? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? What about those who seem to do whatever they want without any consequence at all. Well, this is our third and final point about where is God when life falls apart. And that is, God is weighing people's hearts and he will execute justice. In other words, friends, in the big picture, no one gets away with anything. 
on the last day, the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, everyone will give an account for their life. And God the judge will execute justice perfectly. Thankfully for you and me who are also guilty of sin, had our sin damned at the cross on our Savior Jesus. Justice was poured out there for you and me who believe in him. But for those who mock God, for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, a day of reckoning is coming, and God will execute justice absolutely perfectly. Proverbs 24, 12 says, If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? God will do what is perfectly just on the last day. But we need to remember that this is his work, not ours. It's not our place to individually try to carry out vengeance against the wicked who seem to be getting away with murder. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Where is God when life falls apart? First of all, never forget, he is with us in the midst of our suffering, feeling our pain and caring for our needs. Secondly, he is always working for our good, bringing something good out of the bad. And thirdly, remember, he is weighing hearts of people and he will execute justice. I want to close with an illustration about the well-known French impressionist painter by the name of Pierre-Auguste Renoir. This is a self-portrait that Renoir did. Renoir, as he got older, developed a crippling form of arthritis that was extremely painful, and in his day, they didn't have the kinds of medicines we have today. One day, a friend of his was watching him paint, and the friend wondered how this artist could endure such excruciating agony with every stroke of the paintbrush. He asked Renoir, how can you paint at the expense of such torture? Renoir's simple reply was this, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. Friends, one day I assure you you and I will look back and we will see that our times of suffering were just a brief period of preparation for the never-ending joys of heaven that await us. And so I want to remind you to never, ever forget the pain passes, but the beauty remains. Thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified risen and ascended for you and me. Amen.